with me, and I'm not saying anybody else should do this, but with me, I wanted to just play music. I didn't want to sell cars. I didn't want to sell shoes. I didn't want to paint houses. I wanted to play music. And so I lived enough life that I knew that that little elitist, picky attitude about what I will and what, no. My mind goes to, would you rather do this than paint a house? I'm, okay. So I, I don't care what. I, I, so I played with salsa bands. I played with swing bands. I played with blues bands. I played in any kind of situation I could get in. And when I started booking myself, the budgets had changed so much that I started putting all of my arrangements into a, a sequence with my keyboard and I made tracks for myself. I started doing things that musicians really frowned on me about. Oh, you're lying, you're playing with tracks, you know? And I, <laughs> but I didn't care. I was playing and they were painting houses. And so, I don't judge anybody and I don't think anybody else should necessarily do what I did, but I did whatever it took to uh, play music and pay my bills that way. Welcome to Hello Atelier. I'm your host, Betsy Blodgett, and with me is producer Jonathan Getz. Hello. It was a hot October afternoon when I first saw today's guests, Lonnie and Ronald McFadden, perform as the McFadden Brothers at a Kansas City Arts Festival opening for Janelle Monet. As an amateur tap dancer myself, I insisted we arrive early to watch their show. After all, it isn't every day that you can see a bona fide tap and jazz performance. Admittedly, I thought the idea of artists doing jazz numbers, singing, playing, and choreographed dancing, was something only seen in the movies, where the final performance was the result of multiple takes and heavy editing. But to do it live? That's impossible. So you could say I was captivated by Lonnie and Ronald up on that amphitheater stage, I've certainly never seen someone set a microphone on the floor of a stage mid-song in order to further amplify their feet. Maybe I should try that at my next dance recital. Leave it to the professionals, honey. Hmm, fair enough. Anyway, after seeing them perform, I knew I wanted to hear and share their story. Doing what was necessary to keep the gig, as Lonnie puts it, makes for a unique journey that spanned decades of cultural shifts and taking them across the globe. And no doubt making their parents proud. To begin, you'll hear how it was their father, also a talented jazz performer, who got them off on the right foot with their first show when Ronald and Lonnie were just kids. You can never be too young to show your talents. Hit it. I remember it was at the YMCA on 19th and Paseo. It was probably an audience of about 20. Yeah. Somewhere between 20 and 40, we'll go with that. It was just us <laughs> and our dad. <laughs> uh, we both played piano and organ and sang and danced. Remember what song we sang because I, it didn't yeah. resemble singing to me. <laughs> hey, look me over, lend me an ear. Fresh out of clover, mortgage up to here. Don't pass the fake folks, and don't pass the buck. You figure whenever you're down and out, the only way is up and out. Like the rain. Yeah, that was my dad. And Lonnie played Peter and the Wolf on the piano, and his, yeah. his first grade teacher narrated it. Seemed like I played two a wild roles yeah. on organ. Wow. And I played Ave Maria on organ. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, pretty impressive now that I think of it now, when I think of how young we were, I guess it was. We did a wooden, wooden soldier drill. Yeah, we did this uh, tap dance that our father had showed us that he called it wooden soldier drill. It, yeah. Do you remember like how you felt 
about it, about performing? I loved it. He was a natural entertainer. He really was. <laughs> you know, I, I, I loved it after, after it was over with, especially. Because before I was, I was kind of nervous. But after we got into it, I was, I was just having fun. <laughs> he was. I was serious. I was real serious. I mean, I, you know, the Beethoven eyes, you know. And, and I think that was actually a good thing that I was so much like that because Ronald got so many, he got so much attention from, like, when Ronald was playing this one song, when he was playing it, Ronald is his sense of humor back then is like anything would make him laugh so what he would what he did rather than look out into the audience or look at the piano he started looking out the window and he was smiling while he was doing and everybody thought wow and that tripped me out because i was playing all of this hard concertos i played this this whole excerpt peter and the wolf and all that but everybody left talking about ronald because he was uh having so much fun and I was actually tickled because I was able to do it <laughs> without messing up. <laughs> yeah. And so he made it look, you know, like those clips of the, the Marx Brothers where they doing all the. That's how he was. He was like. Mm. <laughs> it was. And so that was a, a lesson for me. You see, I still remember it. I mean, yeah. So when you were finished, were you like, let's do it again? I just wanted to go outside and play. Uh, you know, and pra- we had to practice. Where other people would be outside playing, and we'd be inside practicing. I didn't like that, so <laughs> I was I had I had mixed emotions about this music thing and this tap dancing thing. It was fun when it was fun, but when everybody else was out having fun and we were being inside practicing, I hated it. But yeah. it, it's <laughs> the most valuable thing ever happened. Obviously, it's yeah. where we pay our bills now. So. And so your dad taught you most of this. He influenced everything. He taught us how to tap dance completely. We took piano lessons back then from Desmona Davis, who was, he's kind of famous around Kansas City because he's the one that was the teacher at Lincoln High School when Charlie Parker or Aladdin or Eddie Baker, Eddie Saunders, all these, all the jazz musicians that are from Kansas City went through Lincoln because it was so segregated back then. And he was the teacher. And so everybody knew about him, but his wife was also an accomplished musician. And she used to give private piano lessons to people that, I mean, she would choose who she, you know, because she didn't need to do it. It was a hobby. And we were two of the people that, that took piano lessons from her. Was your mom musical as well? My mother could play the piano a little bit and sing. She didn't do that very much. Every now and then she'd sit at the piano and sing a song. But it's almost like you had to make her, make her. <laughs> yeah, but she was musical. I think she sung. Did she sing in a in a quartet or, or yeah, the choir? Yeah, some school? kind of a some kind of women's group or choir. You know, back then it was different. I mean, it seems like everybody in their generation could play the piano. I was astounded. I think that because everybody had a piano in the parlor. You know, they didn't have like when I was growing up. I guess television. It came. They didn't have television, and so then in my my kids, it's all the video games. And my mom and dad's generation, I think that the pastime was the yeah, piano, piano. standing around the piano. and Everybody learned how to everybody, play. Everybody, yeah. All of my father's friends, all of them could play a little bit. Everybody could play the piano. 
I remember, I might be wrong on this, but I remember the first gig being at the Muebach Hotel at the top there. Yes, yeah, with the scamps and stuff. And we were one of the acts. You know, back then they had shows with acts, you know. And, and my father and Ronald and I on both sides of them, two little guys, you know. And that was that was cool. That was I like that. I like that a lot to go in and do because we made some money. Yeah. And, that, and that was I loved it. I loved that we would go and do do a, a tap dance, do what seemed like a. It, I, I still don't qualify that as singing, but we sung a song, and my dad would do this bit. So we do approximately ten minutes, and then we get paid. And it was like, wow, that's cool. That is, you know. We did um, a gig at the top of the towers. The yeah, Commerce Towers. Yeah, ooh boy, we 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 did some pretty. Yeah, nice we gigs. did some nice things back then. Yeah, you know? and, <laughs> and so I loved it. I loved. It. I hated the practicing part, but I but far as doing the shows, that recital was stressful for me because it, we we did a, like maybe forty minutes between us, the two yeah. of us, and it was all us. Yeah, you know. Well, this after clothes changes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we had tailor made clothes, and my mom had some lady that was a friend of hers to make these sailor suits for us to do the wooden sailor drill, and we had these look like tuck. It was my oh, mom yeah. and dad. They wanted us to be somebody. <laughs> <laughs> they really did. Performing their jazz and tap act may have been fun while they were little. But when Lonnie and Ronald entered high school, their musical tastes expanded and the cultural perceptions of tap dancing changed. We went to Lincoln High School when it was not uh, an academy. And this, this was before uh, the academy took over. And so in the 60s, when, when you were talking about James Brown, uh, Cool in the Gang, at that time, Tap dancers were not popular. They looked at tap dancers as old. Not even, it wasn't old school. It was just old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Our generation. You have to understand the times that that we're talking about in the sixties. Yeah, it was it's, radical. It's, it was very. There's a lot of radical things going on. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and then when Martin Luther King got killed, and and all of the the things that were going on in the African American community to claim who we are, and so. When our people were fighting to uh, to get respect for our intelligence and, and our humanity, they saw it as a step back. When you look at an old movie that had somebody like Step and Fetch in it, you know, yeah, it's got its comedic value, but our generation yeah. didn't want to deal with that. We're being stereotyped. So then the only tap dancer that was in all of the movies, again, movies were the thing back then. We had no internet. So... The, when the reference point, they wouldn't show the Nicholas Brothers, but they, they use examples like Bojangles, which now, let me say, he was a hell of a dancer. His dancing, I don't care who you are, cannot be questioned. But the image of him smiling all the time and, and so jovial. The they, parts that he had to play. The parts that he had to He's a janitor. He's a... Yeah. All the, of those the things. The whole image. Our generation... Looked at all of that as something that denigrated. Yeah, it didn't give us the respect. Now, as an artist, I don't think anybody even till now will question what Bill Bojangles Robinson did as a tap dancer is it's monumental even now. And so 
We started playing, yeah, so, playing horns. So, yeah, <laughs> tap dancing became one of the the yeah. one of the issues. So we said, okay, we don't want to tap dance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and we stopped totally. But I have to admit, it was mainly peer pressure because I didn't see it that way. Yeah, we grew up in kind of a bubble too, even though we were around everything that was going on in the inner city. You got to realize the our first opinion of a tap dancer was our father. Yeah, that to me nobody was more masculine than my dad. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was the man. You know, even around our neighborhood. So, and then the next time I saw tap dancing was on television with Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy yeah, was, he was cool. cool. He was part yeah. of the Rat Pack. I mean, you know, <laughs> he was one. You know, in my mind, tap dancing had this edge of hipness to it. But then. When we would get around our peers, they looked at it as you must be gay or you Uncle Tom and anything but good or hip, you know. And so when we got to Lincoln Jr., you know, and you starting to like girls. I mean, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so everything is changing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We started to concentrate on playing horns because to play some James Brown riffs or Cool in the Gang, oh, we were in. Yeah. They liked us then. <laughs> and a matter of fact, who was that the denied Jesus? What, what was the, the disciple? I was like that guy when it was a guy. <laughs> it, was a, it was a friend of mine that when I got to Lincoln High School, he said, yeah, Lonnie, I remember you from Linwood and you used to be doing that tap. I said, oh, man, you trip. I don't do no tap. Tap dancing. <laughs> tap dancing. <laughs> no, you thinking of somebody else, man. What brought you together to form an act? <laughs> we had a top 40 band and they quit us. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They told us oh. we're fired. <laughs> no, no, well, the band had ran its course. I was the leader of the band. And, and what happened, we started together as teenagers, but... Life starts happening. You know, you start getting married, start getting, you you start the band, everybody's living with their parents. Now everybody's starting to get their own places. And in the beginning, to hit and miss is okay. You're going home to your mom, you know. But now everybody's getting girlfriends, wives. One of the guys had a little girl on the way. I mean, so life is changing, but the economic situation for our band wasn't changing. Back then... Kansas City, you know, and people now won't even relate to this, but there was like, uh, it wasn't overt racism, but it was it was definitely there. Yeah. I remember during this time I just got married, I was riding through the plaza and I was escorted by this police riding bicycles. A young couple in their 20s riding bicycles in the plaza. And we were escorted, not discreetly, through every block, every turn. Every, we went up the hill to go up to Loose Park where he and I was getting so mad, and my, my wife at the time just made sure that, look, you know how it is. Yeah. I mean, anytime I go in, like Ronald said, we used to buy clothes at Jack Henry's. We were escorted yeah. <laughs> around Jack Henry's. <laughs> Every time we, we, when we walk in there, and we got personal attention. <laughs> Every time. I said all that to say there were no black bands playing on the plaza. No. We had to play in the inner city. And so the inner city being what it was, it's depressing, it's... It's more more poverty, more you know. It's it's working class, but you know it's it's no way in the world that the nightclubs that are just serving the inner city 
could pay what the nightclubs on the plaza and out in Waldo were paying, but we couldn't get, we were good enough. It was a friend of mine that, that used to play in one of the bands on the plaza, a white guy, and he loved, I mean, he'd come over our house and be sitting yeah. out talking to my dad on the front porch <laughs> when I would come out and say, hey, Pat, how you doing? Musicians, we always got yeah. them. Now, that, let, yeah. let me go on record saying that. That part has never been racist, but... For as me, me being able to play at the places that they they would play at, and they didn't get it, but it's the yeah. way it was. So yeah. I said all that to say our band, we couldn't weather the storm. And when we <laughs> broke up, I was lost at what to do. I was used to being Lonnie with Lonnie in the band, the leader of the band, and I didn't know what to do. And we was looking at each other, <laughs> trying to figure out what we were going to do. I said, well, let's go back to what we started doing. Let's just have an act put some some charts together and just go with us you know and so we started rehearsing <laughs> i just did what it took to do our little routines ronald started getting serious with it he started hanging out with some of my father's friends willie williams cornell lyons who turned you on to baby lawrence and all that kind of stuff all kind of things that i'd never heard of and ronald would go around these old hoofers that were friends of my father's and they would show him little things and and ronald started collecting back then it was the beta maxes yeah. he'd find these little archival tapes at the library and stuff that they weren't even playing on pbs he'd find them and he, he'd make copies and stuff and he started studying that stuff so by the time the band broke up Ronald could dance. I couldn't do anything other than what I learned when I was six and seven years old, same routines. And so I started selling shoes. And after I would get off from, from work and selling shoes, I'd go down to my mom's house. Ronald was staying there. My dad had made a little studio in the basement for us to practice. And I'd go every night. Ronald would show me different techniques. I'd get over there like 930. I'd leave at about quarter to 12 at night because Ronald could do these things. He'd get practice with me enough to get the technique. Then I stay in the basement until I get it. We start putting together routines. And as the McFadden, bro, our own routines, deviating away from what we had learned as kids. He was the, the pioneer for us. <laughs> he was the one that went out and found this new territory. While Kansas City has always been a jazz mecca, the lure of the scene in New York City is also hard to resist. So it shouldn't be too surprising that their manager sent them to Manhattan for a gig and to just hang out. After all, if you stick around New York long enough, anything can, and will, happen. He got us a gig doing the Men Who Cook convention. Yeah, yeah in New York. And after that, he said, well, just hang out for a couple of weeks. We went and sat in everywhere. Yep. We went all over New yep. York, sitting in and stuff. And met old hoofers, honey coals, all them guys, yeah. all the copacetics. We sat in in jam sessions. We was we was at a jam session, and honey coals saw us. But it's like the hoofers club, but they didn't have a floor to tap dance. <laughs> so all of them, all of them hung out here and just drank and and, yeah. and socialized. Yeah. So we sat in as musicians, <laughs> yeah. and a partner of ours who was with the band. John Brown told Honey Coles that we were tap dancers, told him who our dad was yeah. and everything. He yeah. said, oh, okay. So Honey came to us. He said, look, I'm going to rent a studio tomorrow. And if you all can't dance the way you blow them horns, yeah. then I'm going to kick you both in the rear. <laughs> Only right. he used more colorful words. Yeah, of course. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. 
And so uh, the next day, he did. He right. ran his studio at, yeah, in Faisal's. And so we went up there and was dancing with Honey Coles. After he saw us dance, we ended up, I bet you we was up there for two hours just dancing. He was showing us. Golly. But that's we when was we moving. started moving we, a lot. Yeah, we Aaron, Because Aaron, I mean, it, he rolled the dice with us. He got us a room at the Edison Hotel in New York. Yeah. And he said, just see what you can do. Yeah, I mean, he out. didn't tell us what to do. <laughs> he said, I just think if you're here. Something will happen. Something will happen. And so we had some musician friends. We go hang out and sit in, and but he didn't tell us to do that. He just said, "I just think if you're actually in New York, something happened. A lot happened, <laughs> way more than we could have ever known was going to happen. You know, we yeah. all we knew is we okay. We got a place to stay, and McDonald's is across the street, mm -hmm. so we good. We good. <laughs> I'm in New York. I mean, what? <laughs> you know, I'm in. I'm a Dance, I'm a tap dance, I'm in New York. And we, we started hanging out every night, going someplace, playing, and we ended up doing some auditions, and that one thing led to about three or four gigs. To hear Lonnie and Ronald nonchalantly tell their story, it's easy to forget how supremely difficult it must be to perform a multifaceted act like theirs. So I asked them about the mental dexterity required to execute multiple talents at such a high level. I think, you know, by us learning tap dancing first, we learned that from my dad and the way he taught, brush, brush, step, brush, brush, step, you know, and everything. But after, you know, the brush, brush and all that, it's yabba da ba ba da ba ba do ba ah, ah. Uh, you know, it's almost like a drummer doing rudiments. Shabba do baba do baby do ba. We were basically t taking piano lessons too. It it came out to the point where that's just what I do. You know, <laughs> I don't know what would you say. How would you? I end up at the same same answer you do, and because I was trying to think of what I think about it. I think I don't think about it till somebody else mentions it because you have to understand we learned how to tap dance so young that I didn't even realize it's something that everybody else didn't do until we started practicing it, which I hated. And, <laughs> and, and but that was part of the deal. I mean, my father he instilled that discipline in us, and which I thank God for because now my wife even can't believe it. she'll leave the house and I'll come to the basement and I'll start and I'll still be here when she gets home. Because I have no problem being by myself trying to figure out what I have to do musically or as a tap dancer. So that, that discipline was priceless. It really was. Now, to answer the question that you said, how do we think about it? I think it's what Ronald said is just what we do because I learned at such an early age, I never thought I'd be a tap dancer. I didn't consciously think that I wanted to be a musician until I was 16. But I already knew how to tap dance. Never wanted to sing, but I was made to sing to keep the gig. Again, everything, <laughs> everything I do is a result of me having to do it to do the gig. Because at the end of the day, I want to play music to make a living. The, when we started tap yeah, dancing again, <laughs> that was because we wanted to keep the gig. We were in yeah. Japan. And in America, to get noticed by record companies or by producers, you have to have your own sound. You have to have something about you that's different. So even though we were doing cover songs, we would put our own spin to it so we could send out demo tapes to people. They said, oh, okay, they got there. But in Japan, that threw everybody. Yeah. They were used to listening to the to the beat. 
And I'm it's got to be just like yeah, it's the gotta record. it's got to be just like it. And when you yeah. change up, it throws them. So we were bombing at the first good gig we had ever had. We're, we're like fresh out of high school, and we're in Japan, Kyoto, Japan. And we're excited, and we know we're a good band. And we were alternating with a Japanese jazz band, a Filipino top 40 band like us, and it was us. We're the American band. We're the top of the food chain, so to speak. Yeah. But people were not responding to us. And so we felt like we had to do something to get their attention. So one day when we're practicing, trying to figure this out, and we thought, well, maybe we'll be a little more visual. We started trying to do some choreography. And Ronald said, why don't we put this part of this this dance routine we learned as kids that my father used to call the tacit. It was all rhythm, but it was synchronized rhythm. Mind you, we hadn't danced since we were like 10, 11 years old. We decided to put together this test. It was almost like we had never stopped because we learned it such early. Like they said, like riding a bicycle. Yeah. We Both of us at practice that day, we remembered how to do it. And so we were doing this disco song and everybody's on the dance floor dancing. And right while they're on the dance floor dancing, we grabbed our microphones, put them on the floor and jumped and started doing this. And they loved it. Yeah. And that was the beginning. Yeah. To answer your everything that I do now <laughs> keep, is a result of, of <laughs> trying to not get fired. Lonnie and Ronald represent just a piece in the long history of Kansas City jazz. Once upon a time, this was one of the hottest jazz scenes in the country, where you could crawl the clubs along 18th and Vine before heading down to the Reno Club to catch Count Basie. As you'll hear... Jazz is still alive and well in Kansas City. I remember last time I was in Chicago, I just wanted to go to this, I can't remember if it was the Green Dolphin, it was some kind of historic jazz club, but I just wanted to go. So I paid $20 to get in, and then the waitress made sure I knew it was a $20 drink minimum. And I wasn't a drinker at the time, I just did it because I had to. I wouldn't have later when I left. The music was secondary to anything I would have heard. I could have went in at least five bars here in Kansas City for free with no drink minimum and heard a higher level of musical artistry. That's what we have now here in Kansas City. And I don't think it's me that has anything to do with that. Bobby yeah. Watson's got a lot too. All yeah. these young cats Bobby now. Has a whole woo, lot to do with it. It's some young it, musicians here now that are, whoa. And, and so that keeps me on top of my game too, though. <laughs> And that's like a resurgence of history because that's what made Kansas City Jazz era what it was. You had all these musicians that came to Kansas City from all over, you know, because it was a lot of work here. It raised the bar as far as musicianship. And that's why a lot of the musicians, they attained a lot of notoriety, you know, where now it's coming back. around. Yeah, it's coming back around. The same thing that happened in my father and Lester Young and them's era when they was where it was so many musicians from all over. Because now people are moving here. They're moving from New York to Kansas City. They're moving from Colorado. I've played with these guys. They're moving from St. Louis to Kansas City, from Chicago to Kansas City. When that happens, the bar gets raised because you get all these guys that are very good. It makes you better. for listening to Hello Atelier. A quick follow-up before you go. Before the pandemic, you could catch various jazz shows any night of the week in Kansas City. And as we all start to get out and about again, hopefully clubs like the Green Lady Lounge and the Blue Room will again sizzle and swing. 
and I know for sure one new club that will be hopping, Lonnie's Reno Club. Yes, Lonnie McFadden just opened his own jazz venue named in honor of the legendary Reno Club. Located in the beautiful Ambassador Hotel, it's the perfect place to linger over dinner and a champagne cocktail while enjoying Lonnie's show. Congratulations, Lonnie! Head over to helloatelier.org to see photos of the McFadden brothers in their studio. We've also posted links to Lonnie's Reno Club and a great video of a recent McFadden Brothers performance filmed live at the legendary Gem Theater. You'll definitely want to check it out. Enjoy!